Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Hear now God's word for us. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Guys, good morning. Uh, I'm Caleb, I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community Church. And yeah, thank you so much for joining us today uh, to worship God together and hear him um, speak to us through his word. And so before we, we do that, I'm just going to say a prayer uh, for us together, for me to speak God's word effectively, but for all of us to be empowered to hear what God has to say to us this morning. So would you play, please pray with me? Dear Lord, thank you for this day and for the privilege that it is to worship you together with other believers. Pray that you would speak through me um, clearly and effectively, that people would hear your word today and would, would hear about your grace and how it transforms and changes us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So as, you all, as we already had, re, had read over us, uh, the passage this morning focuses in on grace, God's grace for us. It is by grace you, you have been saved. I think most of us today would, would define grace as something like a free gift, something that you get but don't necessarily deserve. And there are many such free gifts that we get throughout life. Um, for example, businesses, conferences, and even churches uh, hand out free gifts to people who, who visit them. So right here we have our, our newcomer gift. It's an awesome bag that says I Heart KC on here. And you see the heart, it's, uh, it's a birdie, like the, you know, the birdies in front of Nelson Atkins Museum. Super cool bag. Uh, it's eco-friendly, but also what's really cool about it is it collapses down here into this little pouch so it can be easily stored right away like this. It's a really, really cool part of it. If you're new with us this morning, make sure you see me or our other staff fire hello wall through those doors so we can get you one of these cool bags. But yeah, it just, just cinches up perfectly just like this into a little ball. It's great. But as cool as this gift is, <laughs> thanks Carlos, thanks. As cool as this gift is, your life doesn't depend on it. Now it might sound crazy to some of you, but you can live a very full, satisfying, long life and never have this Christ Community KC bag. Now, on the other hand, imagine with me that you are in debt, like millions and millions of dollars in debt, and about to declare bankruptcy, but someone offers you a blank check that is linked to a bank account that has unlimited resources, and that might take some extra imagination because this, this check is not. It's linked to a very finite amount of resources. <laughs> But think with me, you're right, you're, someone offers you a blank check that could pay off all the millions of dollars that you have. You can write whatever amount you want in there so you can add even more on top of that to be set up for the rest of your life financially, never have to worry about finances or money again. 
how would you respond to receiving this free gift? These are both free gifts. They both cost you nothing. But one your life depends on, the other it doesn't. Which of these free gifts do you treat God's grace more like? Is it something that's kind of cool and, and you like to have it, but at the end of the day, you don't really need it. And so even if you do receive it, it's not something you use often. You could leave this in your cupboard and it's going to collect dust and not be used. Or is it something you desperately need? It's going to radically change your life, and as a result, life is not going to be the same if you receive it and if you use it. So that's what we're, we're talking about this morning, God's grace. Now, if you're just joining us, um, we are going through uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians in this series we've, we've entitled Reconstructing Faith. Now, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, it's, it's different than most of his other letters. It can be called one of his least occasional, as in he's not writing just to one specific church that has a really specific issue and trying to address that. But Paul is writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, and it's meant to be passed around to many other churches in the region surrounding Ephesus um, to explain kind of the basic foundations of the Christian faith and how this first century church in many different cities would live that out in their daily life. And so since it's super beneficial, and as we're going through this as, as modern day believers, we're seeing how it speaks to us as well as so many people in our church and in our Christian culture um, as a whole are going through a season of trying to figure out what they really believe about Jesus and what they believe about Christianity and what they're gonna, how they're going to live that out. You may have heard terms like deconstruction or learning and unlearning or just wrestling with faith being used. And maybe some of you would use that term to describe wh where you're at in your faith today. Or maybe someone you dearly love, that's where they're at in their faith. And so no matter where you are in, in your wrestling and understanding and how long you've been following Jesus, we're really glad you're here with us this morning because it's so important, no matter how long we've been following Jesus, no matter how sure we are in our faith with him, that we're always asking those questions, those hard questions, and seeking to understand what it means to follow Jesus, who he is, what is this world like, and how can we follow him in our daily lives. And thanks for doing that together with us this, this morning and through this series as we're going through the book of Ephesians. And, to, and today we reach... Uh, the third sentence, the third run-on sentence that Paul has for us in, the, in, this, in this book. Um, and some of y'all are a little too excited about going through this book for, sentence by sentence. But we're on the third one this week. Uh, and, and this sentence is all about God's grace. And grace, like I mentioned before, it's one of the most fundamental aspects of Christianity. But it's also one of the most easily misunderstood as well. And so today we're going to see that God's grace is not like any free gift. It's a free gift that is, a, that is a power that makes you truly alive. Grace is a power that makes you truly alive. And today in our passage, as we go through it, we're going to see three things about this kind of grace and the kind of free gift that it is for us. We're going to see first what grace saves us from. Then we're going to see how grace saves us. And then lastly, what grace saves us for. So first, what grace saves us from. So in verse one, uh, Paul tells us you know, what we're saved from. And we need to understand what grace saves us from in order to understand what kind of free gift it is. Because a gift you don't need is really different than one that saves your life. So in verse one, Paul says, Paul says and tells us, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. 
And so where would we be without God's grace that is for us? Paul says that we'd be dead, dead in our trespasses and sins. Now this image of, of, of death, he's not talking about being physically dead, although physical death is itself um, the final outcome, the natural result of this. But he's talking about a spiritual death, a lack of life the way it's supposed to be. And, and this, also this image of death, primarily it's talking about our, incapa- our incapability um, our, 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 to highlight our helplessness. Because if you're dead, there's nothing you can do to make yourself come back alive. If you're sick, you could go to the doctor, you get some medicine, you could take that, and you could feel better. But if someone is dead, there's nothing that person can do apart from God's miraculous intervention to make them come back alive. And, and that's what Paul is describing here for all of us, as, as we were. But here we are not just passively dead, like lying dead, but Paul says we are walking dead. We are walking dead in our trespasses and sins. And this walking, it's to communicate that we might have this appearance of being alive. We move about through the world walking in our trespasses and sins, but actually there's death underneath that. And this, this walking dead, it, what it looks like is, is being lived out in trespasses and sins. And these words can get a little churchy and a little confusing. But trespasses, what that really means is that's that, that's that image of walking, making a misstep, and then falling down and kind of stumbling. So in, in scripture, it refers to as we are um, following God and, and following him, we, we deviate from the path that he has set out for us. And so we stumble and fall. And then sins, it's also, it's that image of, of an archer shooting an arrow uh, towards a target and it falls short of that target and misses its mark. And so that image refers to um, people making choices, a- actions, attitudes, behaviors that deviate from, go- from God's purpose, what he intends human beings to live and be like. And this problem of being dead in our sins, walking dead in our sins, it goes deeper than just these mere individual actions that we all have done without God. But, but Paul says there's a, there's a deeper problem as well. He identifies three spiritual powers that are leading human beings that we used to follow. They're the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. And these are referring to these spiritual forces and powers in our world of, of evil that are at work. These, these may be and may manifest themselves in systems and structures and cultural values that incentivize and reward people to act in ways that are contrary to the way God designed us and created us to live. And Paul here, as he's talking about this, this prince of the power of the air, he gives this image of tainted or polluted air. He says, you know, the, 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 we're following the prince of the power of the air. It's spirit, which is another word for spirit in the Bible. Another translation of that could be breath. It's breath is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So it's this image that this prince is controlling the air and has tainted and polluted it. And as we all just go through our life and we're breathing in this corrupted air in our world, that's going to affect us. No matter what we do, we're going to be affected by it because it's the air that we are walking in and breathing in. And that breath, it corrupts us and leads us towards disobedience to God. And so Paul says, right, this is, this is the reality. This is what is happening to us. And, it's, and, it ha- and this air has corrupted and affected every person and you can't help but ex- escaping it. It's affected every person equally alike. He continues on in verse three saying this, that among whom, this is the children of disobedience, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
So this is an unexpected turn right here. He's formerly been saying that you Gentiles, which were pagan, former idol-worshiping people, you were dead in your sins. But now he turns and says, we also, very deeply religious, rule-following, Torah-observant Jews, we also were in the same way. We were also dead in our sins, but we were also living out the passions of our flesh. It's not just the pagan Gentiles, but also the rule-following Jews who are in the same boat of being dead in their sins. Paul says that he sought out to please both the desires of his flesh and his mind. So it's not as though as a religious person he has this um, immaterial mind or his immaterial self that's really good and the problem is his physical body that is leading him astray and has habits or desires that go against the way God wants him to live. But actually, every part of who he is, he is saying, and every part of who we are is corrupted and tainted by sin and it's not the way God created it to be. And that doesn't mean we are all as evil as we could be um, or, or totally evil to our core because we are still in God's image and still have that goodness within us. But we are prevented, all of us, without God's grace from living life, every part of us, from living the way it's supposed to be. And this, this idea of sin that has affected all of us equally, it's probably one of those misunderstood and misapplied concepts in Christianity. And maybe, you know, you've been kind of recoiling and, and shrinking down as I've been talking about this the past 10 minutes because you have heard religious people and Christian people use this concept of sin to shame you, to manipulate you, uh, to, to put you down as if only you struggle with sin but not religious people. But that's like not what Paul is saying here. He's saying every single person, religious or pagan, is formally affected by the same sinful nature. But it's so natural for us to categorize people into, into, into categories and concepts of good and bad. I don't know if you were like me when I was a little kid. When I was watching a movie with my parents, as soon as a new character would come on screen, I'd just lean over to my mom and dad and say, hey, is, is this a good guy or a bad guy? Because I just wanted to know the story so I could figure it out. And even as adults, we still do the same thing. We love to categorize people into good and bad. But in, it, we do that in such a way that we are the good guys and they are the bad guys. We categorize people into us and them into good and bad. So if you're a religious person, I assume you, you probably have a pretty uh, clarified set, a list of do's or don'ts. Typically in our culture, these are external actions, often relating to sexual ethics or related to politics, that if you do these things well, you're a good person and everyone else who doesn't is a bad person. There's also a secular version of this as well, which assumes that everyone is really good deep down inside, and so everyone should be able to live as they please, as they want. And actually, the only bad people are those who prevent other people from living the way they want. And so you see both, both sides, both ways, and, and many other worldviews that I could explain, would the common denominator in them all is you're the good guy, and those people over there, they're the bad ones. We get really good at, make, at, at, at defining good and bad to absolve ourselves while condemning other people. But gospel-centered Christianity is the only worldview that is the great equalizer. Because here we, we, we see and we say that all of us were dead in our sins. We were all equally alike under the, the, these powers, these dark, evil, spiritual powers. We were all dead in our sins. And so all of us, in that sense, are the bad guys. And as we will see in this passage in a little bit, the only reason that some of us have been able to be made new is because there was one good guy, Jesus, who came and lived and died for us and lived again. And it's only through grace and only through trusting in him that that's possible. 
But unless you, you, you humble yourself to see that this is true, you will create these categories of good and bad and place yourself in the good so you can put other people down. So Paul says we're on the same boat. You Gentiles were dead in your sins, but we religious Jews just were. And all of us, just like those who remain without accepting Jesus, Paul says we're children of wrath. And this also right, can easily trip us up, thinking about God's anger towards sin. Because when we hear that, often it's so easy to think about God's anger in the same categories, in the same way we think about human anger. Like we see humans get mad and upset, and we see them do that in really unstable ways. The littlest thing will set them off. Uh, we'll see them get mad and, and be mad in a way that is out of proportion to the offense. And we've had people in our own lives, right, erratically get mad at us for something, for something someone else did, but they're taking it out on us. But that is not what God's wrath, what God's anger towards sin is like. God's righteous anger is not like human sin. It's the right and proper response to sin. And it's not arbitrary that he's going to go off one time and not go off the other, but it actually matches rightly what sin is. So if you think about, um, think about this. So, th- so think about uh, driving in a car really fast around a, a, a tight curve on a road, a very narrow road, and you're speeding around that, that curve. Often we might think, right, God's wrath towards sin in that situation is like the cop pulling you over and giving you a speeding ticket. It's kind of arbitrary. They just decided randomly the speed limit would be 25 instead of 35. But no, that's not, not what God's wrath towards sin is like. God's wrath towards sin is like, in that same analogy, if you're driving around a curve going really fast, that you drive so fast that you lose control of your car and you fall off the road and your car crashes and you die. It's, it's the natural consequence. It's what sin naturally produces. It's not arbitrary and not God deciding these things are good things and these things are bad things just because I feel like it. But God created life. He created this world with a moral order, a moral structure. And if you live in opposition to that, you're going to experience death. You're going to experience that death in your life, that spiritual death in your life now. And then finally one day you'll experience that, that real physical death and that separation from God as the natural outcome for rejecting him and his plan for way life is supposed to be lived. And that's what all of us have done in our life in one way or another. We have turned against God and the way he created us to live. And so we've experienced that spiritual death. And unless you know that, and unless you humble yourself to admit that deep need, that place you are in of absolute need for God, then God's grace, it remains a useless gift, one that you don't really need, and so it's not going to have the power to transform your life. So now we've talked about uh, what grace saves us from. Let's now look at how that grace saves us. How does grace become that life-giving power? So Paul turns in verse 4 after explaining how we're walking dead in the trespasses and our sins. Rightly deserving wrath, Paul turns in verse 4 to tell us how grace saves us. He says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. See, God saves us because of his generosity. And this, is a, this grace is a power to make you come alive. It raises us up to God, and it enthrones us with Christ. And we are saved by grace because we are united by grace. There's nothing that we've done to deserve that or to earn that or make that happen. It's by God's great mercy that he has chosen to do that and to unite himself to us and save us from being dead in our sins. And then, yeah, that's only happened because we are united with Christ. He says we've been made alive together with Christ. 
We've been raised up with him and seated, and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's all because we're unified with Christ. In God's sight, by faith, whatever Christ has accomplished, whatever he has done for us, it is as though we have done it ourselves. And whatever he has, it is, as, it is as though we have it ourselves. And so though we were rightly dead, spiritually dead in our sins, under God's wrath, right, it's a foretaste of the future consequence and punishment for what rebellion against him produces, God came to this world as a human being in the person of Jesus, and he died for us, even though he did not deserve it. And as we were united with him in his death, also when Christ rose from the dead, three days later, we were also raised with him. We were made spiritually alive in his resurrection, and we share in that as a foretaste of our own future resurrection that we will experience one day. In God's sight, we are no longer dead in our sins, but we are alive in Christ. And Jesus, he also ascended back into heaven, back into a restored, right relationship with God. And so we are no longer objects of wrath, no longer estranged from God, but because we're spiritually united with him, we ourselves are there in heaven with God, experiencing that goodness and love and grace he has for us. And we get a small taste of that now, but we'll ultimately experience that even more fully when God makes everything right. And Jesus also sat down at the right hand of God. He was enthroned in power as the Lord and King of the entire world. And so we also, because we're united with him, we are there spiritually, reigning with him. And we're no longer subject to the prince of the power of the air, these spiritual forces that control our world, that we can resist them and we can overpower them through Jesus. And we get to experience a small taste of that now, of what that ultimate reality will be in the future when Christ returns and we reign with him on earth and we set this place right in justice through his power. And so no matter what you feel like today, if you feel like you're dead in your sins, if you feel like you're cut off from God, if you feel like you are un un being oppressed by spiritual powers of darkness, that's not what's most true about you. The truest thing about you, if you believe in Jesus, is that you are united with him and everything that he has done, it is as though you have done it. Everything he has, it is as though you possess it. Because that is the truest thing about you because you are united with him, that you are in Christ. And we experience small tastes of that now, and we will experience that all the more in the future when everything is made right. Now, this union with Christ concept can be kind of hard for us to understand in some ways. It feels pretty heady. It's hard to make that real. So let me give you like this modern-day example. Has anyone here ever been in a, in a group project in school? In fourth group project, you were paired with the smartest kid in class. Maybe some of you were that smartest kid that everyone else wanted to be in a part, partner with, but you're... But let's say, so you're, you're in school, you're paired in a group project with the smartest kid in class. And so they're gonna, and they don't mind doing all the work. They're gonna do all the work. It's gonna be done really, really well. And so you can do nothing and you're gonna get, an 100, get 100. You're gonna get an A on that project because you're in a group project with the smartest kid in class. In many ways, that's what union with Christ is like. That because of what he has done, we get to accomplish. <laughs> we don't have to do anything, but get to, get to experience all the benefits from what he has done for us. But also it's a little different than that situation because it's like, because uh, the union with Christ doesn't leave us how we are. It also changes us as well. So it's like in that same analogy, if you're in a group project with the smartest kid in class and then through that process of working on the project with them, you find like all of a sudden, like you just become a much better student. Like their study habits, their writing style just starts to rub off on you. And after your, that group project, you're like, I'm a much better student because of that. 
And somehow, like mysteriously, like their passion for the subject matter, their love for learning for learning's sake is so infectious that you can't help but like get really passionate about like organic chemistry or whatever. And you're just like <laughs> so pumped about it after just having this one group assignment with this really smart student. That's what union with Christ is like. We are united with him, whatever he accomplishes for us. We get to experience by his grace, but also through that process, because we are joined with him, he pulls us with him and he makes us like him by his grace. So that's this, this third thing that this passage tells us about, what grace saves us for. For I said what grace saves us from, how grace does that by uniting us with Christ. But the last thing, what grace saves us for. What is the purpose uh, that God has in saving us by his grace? So in verse seven, after, after telling us that God has made us alive, saved us by his grace, raised us up and seated us with Christ, he says this, he says he did all this so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So first and foremost, before Paul tells us these other things grace does for us, he makes sure we understand that God saves us by his grace so that we can experience more grace. Now, it may sound super redundant, but stick with me here. God saves us to show us his kindness, both now in small tastes, but ultimately more and more in the future as he makes everything right. See, see, God didn't save us primarily because he needed us to do something for him. He's not sitting up there in heaven being like, man, I, I feel really like, insecure in who I am. I could really use some people to come to church and sing songs for me. Like, I really need some affirmation. God's not like that. He doesn't need something from us. And his grace is giving something to us that we don't deserve and that he doesn't need anything in return. He just wants us to experience that goodness. God has so much riches, so much love and kindness that he wants a people to give those good gifts to and to lavish with that goodness. See, God's like a parent who chooses to have or even chooses to adopt a child just because he wants a child to be an object of his love. You know, if you're, if you're a parent here or, and, and, and you have children, or, or if, um, yeah, if you're your child and have parents, right, a good and loving parent has a, has a child not because they need something from that child. They don't need that child to do chores for them. The first few years of their life, they can't do anything. They don't need that child to respond to them in love. They, don't, they shouldn't have that child to fulfill their own desire of being a parent and becoming personally fulfilled by that. No, a good and loving parent has children or adopts children because they want someone to show their love to. They want someone to give, give gifts to. They want someone to get to know and to see that child grow up and become who they are and just delight in who they are and who God's made them to be. In the same way, God doesn't save us because he needs us to do something for him. He doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need our good works. He saves us so he can make us into something beautiful and love us and give us grace and we can be objects of his love. But that goodness that we experience from God, it's not something that leaves us the same, but it transforms us as we experience. And so that's the next thing that God's grace saves us for. God's grace saves us for good works. In verse 10, Paul goes further, explaining why we are saved by grace. And he says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. Now, this word for workmanship that Paul uses is the Greek word poema. Now, uh, I'm curious, does anyone here have a good guess what English word comes from this Greek word poema? Any guesses? 
Any guesses? Poema? Is that shouted out? Poem. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Look at all these Greek scholars we got in the house today, right? The English word poem is derived from this word because just like in English, right, a poem refers to a written composition crafted with, with skill and care where the just, just the right word matters. In a similar way, uh, poema is, is a physical thing created by your hands with skill and care and craft. And so another kind of translation for this could be masterpiece, handiwork, workmanship, work of art. That's what each and every one of us are. It's God's work of art that he has created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so the God, though God doesn't need our works, he creates us into something beautiful to display that. And as his beautiful good works, we are gonna do that. We're gonna live that out because that is who we are. That is who he's made us to be. And so you're naturally gonna live out that work of art through these good works, which are these acts of kindness, these acts of compassion, care, justice, service towards others, that's what's naturally gonna flow out of who you are because of what God has made you to be. And though we were formerly dead and we were walking dead in our trespasses and sins, God has, has made us alive and now we walk in good works and we should walk in them. And so grace, in this way, it doesn't go, it, it goes against our earning, our doing things to earn God's approval, but it doesn't go against our effort. God's grace is not opposed to our effort because our decisions to live into who we are, to live into this work of art God has made us to be and to act in accordance with that, putting in the effort to, to become that, that is, that, is, that is actually what grace looks like when it's working in your life. That is what grace looks like when it's active within you. It's causing you to act in these ways, to, to act out these good works. And it goes against, you know, if, if you think about grace just as a free gift that that's, you don't really need, and it's, it's, and it's not really a thing that changes your life, um, then you're not going to experience grace like this. You're not going to experience grace as a life-changing power because something you don't really need, so you're not really going to use it or rely on it. But if you really get a hold of how you are dead in your sins and the only thing that's made you come alive, the only thing to make you right for God is God's grace and his initiative, and you see that costly grace that he paid to make you new and make you into a work of art, if you really get a hold of that and you really let that grip your life and that love that God has for you grip your life, it's going to be a power that transforms you. Jesus says when he is with, um, if you remember the story from the Gospels, this woman comes who's a sinful woman, she washes his feet, and he says in that moment, at that story, whoever is forgiven little loves little. Whoever is forgiven much loves much. Right? Our ability, to, our capacity to love other people and to love God is intimately related to how much we know we are ourselves been forgiven. Knowing our own need of being dead in our sins and seeing God's grace transform that and seeing it for the free gift it is that has the power to make us alive, that is a power of love that changes us and will change you more than willpower or effort ever could on its own when you really get hold of that. And so then, we, we, because we're saved by this grace, we, we, we live this out, right? We, 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 li we live this out, and, and, and we live out this act of, of, of good works for other people. And since we, we live out these good works, and since we are all each individually a work of art, that's going to look a little different for each and every one of us, right? We're each God's workmanship. We're not all the same. And although uh, the underlying virtues and morality is the same for every person, what it looks like for one person to be loving is going to be different 
based upon who they are, who God's made them to be, and where they are in life. And Paul, even in this letter in Ephesians, as we go through this letter the next few months, we're going to see that Paul has different things to encourage different kinds of people to do based upon where they are in life, based upon um, their gifting, their ethnicity, their gender. And that's a good thing that we are different. And that diversity, as we come together and our, our get, we each lean into who we are by created by God, but also do that together with one another, that is, we become an even more beautiful kaleidoscope of God's work of art together in that diversity. And one of the primary unique ways that we get to live out the, these good works and we walk in these good works is through our Monday vocations. Right? These are the places throughout the week that we, um, God has strategically placed us to serve him and love others, whether that be paid work or unpaid work, whatever takes up the majority of your time each week, God has prepared that place in advance for you. And I hope that tomorrow on Labor Day, as, we, as I hope you have the day off tomorrow, that you take that day off as God's gift to you. And that you take time tomorrow as you're resting from your work, reminding yourself that you don't need to do that work to be in a right standing before God or to, be, to prove that you're worth it to him. But you can, in that day, I hope you, I encourage you, take some time to remind yourself that God delights in your work as you are his work of art and he has prepared that work in advance for you to do that you would work in, that you would walk in them. So not only does God's grace save us to experience more of his grace and save us for good works, but lastly, God's grace, it saves us for radical humility. In verse eight, Paul says, for grace, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And all this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. And why? So that no one may boast. Right, this gift of being saved, it's received through faith, right? Having this faith and trust in Jesus, it doesn't earn you a right standing before God. It is just the means God has chosen for us to use to access his grace. That's because faith demonstrates trust or reliance on, on its object. So if any of you here today, right, uh, I'm just curious, by a show of hands, who here used an alarm to wake up this morning? Wow, most, most people. Cool, cool. So anyone who used an alarm to wake up this morning cannot boast about waking up and getting here to church on time. Because you didn't wake yourself up. Your alarm did. All you did, you, you, you did place faith and trust in your alarm by setting it last night or setting it you know, many weeks ago if it's on a calendar. But that alarm woke you up. You didn't have the power in yourself to wake up. That alarm did it. And in a similar way, we don't have the power to make ourselves come alive, to be right before God. We just place trust in his grace to do that. And so it doesn't matter if you're like super strong in your faith and super sure of who God is and you believe everything and never wrestle, or you're like struggling with doubts and you just don't know if you believe this fully. Because it's not the amount of faith you have that saves us. It's you making the choice to, no matter what I'm wrestling with, I'm putting my trust in God. At the end of the day, I'm putting my trust in him and I'm relying on him and accessing his grace to save me and transform me. And so because that is true, we can't boast because of who we are. Because it's not what we've done. We've just relied on God to do that in us. And that goes so against the way most of us walk through life. Right? We all go through life with something or a few things in life that we can boast about and can make us feel good about ourselves. Right? So that maybe your career, maybe your morality, maybe your intelligence, your religious observance, your family, your ethnicity, your finances, volunteerism, whatever, whatever it is for you, we all have these different things that we put our, our trust in, we, that we boast in to prove to ourselves and others that we are worth it. But Paul here says there is no room for boasting because the only thing that's made us alive again is God's grace and we just receive that by faith. 
and especially all these other things that we boast in, they only, um, they only do that. They only make us feel better about ourselves in comparison to other people, if, you, if you've experienced that. So if you feel really good about your finances, um, it's because you, you feel that way in comparison to other people. Like I'm a harder or a smarter worker than other people, therefore I deserve to have this. I can feel good about accomplishing it on my own. Or if you're a really religious person, I do all the right things, I try really hard to be a good person and follow the rules, therefore I'm a better person than other people. But in, but in this way of thinking, since we are saved by grace through faith, boasting is excluded, we can't hold that over other people and boast over them. So Jesus, he once told this parable about, um, or about, uh, towards people who trusted in themselves, thought they were righteous, and therefore looked down upon other people. He said there were two men who went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself, raised up his hands, and said, I thank you, God. He prayed like this. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. I'm like these other people who are evildoers, adulterers, robbers, or even this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give 10% of all I make to the temple and to the poor. But the Pharisee, or the tax collector, stood from afar, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but instead beat his chest, and said, have, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. And Jesus says that this man, and not the other, went home justified, in a right relationship with God, because whoever humbles themselves will be exalted, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And so church, let's remember that. Let's remember that that's this grace that God has given us. It's a free gift. It's a free gift we desperately need, the free gift that makes us come alive. And we can't boast in it. It is something we have to humble ourselves to receive, to acknowledge and know our deep need for it. And receiving that gift, receiving that love, it changes us to become new people. And so let's never lose sight of the fact, let's rely on God's grace like our life depends on it because it truly does. So please pray with me. Lord, thank you for, for your word. God, thank you for your grace that saves us, that makes us alive. And God, I ask that each and every one of us, that we would trust and rely in your grace more, that we would see it for what it is, and we would see ourselves for who we are without you, not in a way that shames us, but God, in a way that, that shows us all the more how gracious and loving you are. God, I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.